This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a phenomenal episode. We are coming live from your house. That's right, the new podcast studio where there's considerable construction going on outside, but there is a lot of construction going on inside. It's almost like you're rebuilding your house and you timed it perfectly (laughs) with the episode. (laughs) Um, So if you hear a brap in the background, it's not Matt on his CR80. Uh, it is, uh, for all you motorcycle enthusiasts, <laughs> it's actually a, a, some kind of a saw or a drill. Yeah. Yeah. We got a guys building a fence and actually they were here. They got here right before as Larry Beasley walked into the studio Yeah, and, uh, we had to tell them to take a coffee break for about an hour, hour and a half. And, uh, they were nice enough to do it. So yeah. side note, why are you still riding an 80? <laughs> Time to level up. Uh, we've got a fantastic episode today. We've got Larry Beasley. Larry wears a lot of hats. Um, one hat is obviously fan favorite. Yeah. But another hat is he's the distinguished practice professor of planning at UBC. He's the founding principal of Beasley and Associates. He has a building in Yale Town named after him. Uh, he's the retired co-chief planner at the city of Vancouver, a member of the Order of Canada, and last but not least, the author of a new book, and we're super excited about it. It's called Vancouverism. It's called Vancouverism. And Larry is a guy, and we've had him on the show twice now, and you'll you'll see during this conversation, uh, you can, can't say enough positive things about Larry, but he's inspirational. Super kind of inspirational. in everything he says, you're like, that was inspired. Really well-spoken, too. I yeah. noticed like, he, can, he can really 
uh, you, you listen to him talk, and you know exactly what he's trying to say. He wrote this book voice to text. It's, <laughs> There's a good chance he might have. That's how well-spoken he is. But what we want to mention before we go live with our interview with Larry is that we've actually got a signed copy of Vancouverism. Larry was nice enough to sign a copy while he's here. And we're going to be giving it away to one of our listeners. So what you have to do is you don't go on iTunes. All you do is Google Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And on the, on the right side of the screen, you're going to see a photo of Matt and I and Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And you can just click on add a review and the next five reviews is that right matt the next five the next reviews five reviews will reach out to one of those five reviews and you're gonna get a signed copy of vancouverism in the mail in the mail and or you can pick it up it depends or we can drop it off who knows depending on where you live mission excluded um <laughs> Why don't we just quickly talk about this book, though? Because we we cannot say enough good things about this book this, and why you want it. You know what? This is a book where, first of all, you're going to want to read it. Uh, it's a phenomenal book, really well written, really readable. Okay, so it's a, an easy book to read. There's tons of amazing photos. It functions as a as a coffee table book. It's going to make you look really engaged in the city which you are sure. if you're listening to this podcast. And then, last but not least, past guest Francis Beulah wrote the intro. There's kind of a history of urban development in the city that I found fascinating as well. There's a ton of reasons why you want this book. And the way you do it is you go to the right-hand side on Google where you see our uh, Vancouver Real Estate Podcast mugs. And, uh, and by mugs, I mean faces. And write a review. Next that, was, that was confusing because we also have Vancouver Real Estate mugs. We also have Real mugs. mugs. <laughs> Specify if you do want a mug. <laughs> we'll throw that in. Yeah, absolutely. It is It is a long interview, but it is a phenomenal interview, and there's so much useful information. So yeah, uh, yeah let's just get right into it. Yeah, I mean, this that hour went fast talking to Larry, so enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Larry Beasley, and I apologize because this is a mouthful, but uh, Distinguished Practice Professor of Planning at UBC, Founding Principal of Beasley & Associates, Retired Co-Chief Planner at the City of Vancouver, and Member of the Order of Canada, and last but not least, author of new book, Vancouverism, published this year by UBC Press. Welcome, Larry, and thanks for coming on. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it sounds like best-selling book. Yeah, Vancouver well, so far it's selling well. Uh, you know, it's an interesting story that I've been wanting to tell for a few years, and no one else has told the story. And um, it, it seems that the public in Vancouver have responded quite positively to, uh, to what it's been all about. People have been really fascinated through the years of how Vancouver made its transformation and uh, so now it's it's all put together in this one book. It's a pretty heavy book. <laughs> a beautiful book. We, I think we've said on the podcast already, we have a copy. It's uh, it's kind of like a coffee table book, but very readable. A lot of photos. Beautiful book, for sure. Thank you. It's, uh, it's meant to be, on the one hand, uh, a book that visually portrays a story, because a lot of the target of the book are people all over the world who have a very strong interest in Vancouver. I constantly am hosting people here to talk about how the city transformed. I'm, I work around the world talking with people about how you can apply Vancouver principles. 
but you really need to show it visually. And I, and when I was talking to the publisher, UBC Press, originally, I said, look, this, this has to be full color. Uh, it has to really tell the story in pictures as well as in words. And, and, uh, and secondly, to be honest, I wanted to use my own photography. So almost all the images in the book are my own images. So not only did I write the story, but I selected the images. It's so incredible. We, we've, we've talked, we talked about this a little bit off, off air, but it took you about 18 months or so to write the book. But when did you start thinking that you would write a book on Vancouverism? What happened was that uh, I left the city in 2006, and I started working around the world in the Middle East, uh, up in the Nordic countries, Australia and elsewhere. And I found this incredible interest in, in Vancouver. A lot of people knew about Vancouver and the transformation, but they really didn't know how it happened, why it happened, exactly when it happened, what the, uh, you know, the, uh, the various events were. And uh, so a lot of people kept saying, that needs to be written down. That's number one. Number two, I worked with a lot of amazing colleagues through the year, those years, some of the most brilliant people I've ever come up across. I was working with day to day. But none of them were prepared to put pen to paper to write the book so far. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping my book engenders someone else to also write their version of things. And so, and, and number three, uh, over the last few years in particular, a lot of the younger generation of Vancouver have been totally fascinated by what's going on here. Why, why have you created, or we, the city, created a kind of place that people really enjoy when other cities are still often on a downward spiral? So those three things together, along with me getting a little bit more time in my life, um, meant, really created the opportunity. Wow. And, and it's funny because, uh, you know, the book was just published, but it feels like, of course, there should be a book on Vancouverism. <laughs> right? It almost like you didn't even realize that there was a void until... Well, I often say to uh, my colleagues around the world, uh, when, you've, when you, you've worked on something that's been very creative and, and, and has yielded results, you do have to write about it. You do have to put it on the record because what happens is we don't. And then the stories get lost. And the second thing is st people start to interpret what happened from their own perspective. What I wanted to do was offer an insider's view. I was, I was at the heart of the action from, you know, before Expo 86, in fact, in the late 70s, right through to just before the Olympic Games. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I live the whole thing from the inside out. And so I wanted this, the story to have that insider perspective. So if you're reading it and you're your age, I can guarantee to you this is what happened. Mm -hmm, right. I was there. I was with the people. I've identified the actors. I've identified the ideas and when they gelled in a way that, you know, you can trust. And, and you, I, I noticed that you, there's a dedication to the people that were involved in, in the process at, at the outset of the book. How, how important are the, are the players in this story in, in, in the development of Vancouverism? What happened, and it was almost, I would say, an accident of history, was that we had uh, just a coming together of an extraordinary group of people. And not just in the planning department or at City Hall, but in the development industry, in the design community. 
we had a whole generation of people who had been out and about and seen the world. We had a whole generation of people that were quite critical of the past. We had a whole generation of people that were pretty politically active. Um, and, um, you know, I just, I, 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 I felt strongly this was not a story about just a few people or just about City Hall. This was a story about a whole city, a whole community that came together in a very different way. I work in cities all over the world, and I can tell you the kind of collaboration and cooperation, the sense of shared vision, the, the, the sense of joy in the invention of the new city that was shared across all the sectors um, is quite unique. And um, I wanted to celebrate all those people. There's no way, there's a tendency in our modern world to say, you know, she did this or he did that. Well, you don't create a city that way. A city is the result of thousands of contributions from all kinds of people. And you fight and you, you know, you hug and you do everything positive and negative, but in the end, something comes out. In Vancouver, the people who were engaged in that were an amazing group of people. Larry, this was one of the questions um, we had for you, and it was based on what the the kind of story you told about arriving to Vancouver last time we spoke. But do you think Vancouverism comes out of a? Is it a cultural moment? Is it a, a uniquely West Coast experience? It strikes me as like it, it. It seems like even from what you just said, it's it's almost has part of the the 60s or the the kind of radicalism that happened during that era and the baby boomers radicalization like this seems like a product of that in a way in my mind to an extent it is the other thing it is however is a i believe a uniquely canadian um, creation in the book i i i spend a fair amount of time helping people around the world understand the unique canadian situation um, the nature of our um, uh, collective perspective of the world, the role of government in Canada is compared, say, to the United States or elsewhere in the world. Um, the, 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 the sense of liberation that really washed across Canada from the 60s to the 70s through the turn of the century and the creativity that came out of that. What a lot of Canadians don't realize is that we are renowned around the world for being able to build livable, appealing cities. Um, and it, there's something about our, our culture. On the one hand, we have the rule of law and we have the structures that come with that that I know drive people crazy from time to time. But on the other hand, we have a sense of free market liberation to do things to react to changing market conditions. And then thirdly, we have this simple, I would say a, a personal freedom that allows us to be creative, to experiment. You put all that together, it's unique. And then there is that little dose, as I say in the book, of the West Coast tradition. You know, we are, uh, we are where environmentalism really came together. Uh, you know, David Suzuki lives here. And right. while David was not directly involved in many of the things we were doing, the fact is that he was an incredible inspiration. You know, the fellow who invented the uh, uh, ecological footprint, Bill Reese, is from UBC, a concept now used around the world. It was invented right here. And so just as we were getting excited about changing our city, we had a concept, a, a, a framework right here from our own people that gave us the way to go. So 
Yes, it's quite unique. Right. And interestingly enough, I've done a lot of work up in the Nordic countries, which have a, uh, a social contract between government and citizens, which is unique in the world and very supportive of people. Even there, they believe that the balance between government uh, leadership and private action and nonprofit action and community uh, uh, advocacy uh, in Canada and in Vancouver is quite unique. That's fa- that's that's fascinating. Maybe for those listening who have undoubtedly heard the term Vancouverism, uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about what Vancouverism actually means yeah. in case somebody's we scratching should, we their head. We should have did that first, Matt. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, uh, Vancouverism, by the way, is just a convenient term. I am not in this book advocating that this is a new, you know, a new way to build cities. Right. I think that's, uh, in fact, obnoxious. Uh, I think every city has to decide how it wants to invent itself. And in fact, uh, uh, my colleague, Jonathan Barnett, who I wrote my first book with, Eco Design for Cities and Suburbs, really, if you use the word ism, he gets very upset because he says everyone has an ism. So this book uses the word mostly get your attention. But it also uses the word because it, it does bring together the uniqueness of this time and this place and this people and what they did into a movement that was bigger than the sum of the parts. We don't know who first used the word Vancouverism. Some people say it was, uh, you know, the journalists, uh, kind of a pejorative, or some architects were using it just for the tower and the podium. We don't, actually don't know. I've not been able to figure that out. But I have noticed something that just really was fascinating, which is right around the world, the, world's in u- the word is in use. Right around the world. I, I go to the strangest places, and they say, oh, yeah, you, uh, you have that way of building. It's called Vancouverism, isn't it? You know, it's that kind of thing. So what is it? Well, it's a way of looking at cities, first and foremost, to create a great experience of living in a city. That's number one. Number two, it's a, a, a way of building cities that hopes to be as inclusive as it possibly can be, which, by the way, is a uniquely Canadian thing as well. We're all kind of immigrants to our city. Um, and it tries to be inclusive. Now, I'm not glossing over the fact that we have very big issues with affordability and racism and other things in our society. But the way that we were trying to build a city was wanting to be as inclusive as possible. And it's also a way of building cities that is responsible to the natural environment, the natural setting. We sit in one of the most beautiful and the most uh, uh, rich natural settings in the world. Our indigenous uh, the founders of, of uh, human beings living here were always sensitive that at their culture, their art reflects that. And we tried to bring that into um, the kind of city that we would build. It, it, you know, when I was a kid in Vancouver, they used to say that, the, the, uh, that we were a setting in search of a city. Right. right. Now, you don't hear people say that anymore. We are a great city. It sits within its setting, but it sits responsibly within its setting. And what that means in practice is density, diversity, active transportation, um, uh, social inclusion, and a variety of other f- factors, and the ideas I lay out in my book that c- human beings still like living in communities and neighborhoods. 
They like that idea. You know, when I was a young fellow, people said, it's irrelevant. Neighborhoods are irrelevant anymore because, you know, we're all on the web and we can do anything we want. We can talk to people all over the world. And that's true. My, I, you know, even this morning, I was talking to people in three different parts of the world before I came here. But that hasn't changed the fact that people love face-to-face engagement. And when they get offline, you might say, they want to see one another. They want, you know, you want to go to a bar and fall in love. And so what we wanted to create was a community based on neighborhood, but then that was also achieving very important environmental and community objectives. So the nice thing about Vancouverism is it's this lovely balance between personal and private fulfillment, which you might say is the ultimate private market concept, and community fulfillment, which you might say is the ultimate, I dare to say, socialist concept. In the modern world, we fortunately don't use those terms much anymore, and that's a good thing, because what we've tried to do is meld it, and we've tried to realize that the best societies are balancing your personal freedom and your personal comfort and, uh, and fulfillment with uh, community responsibility and community fulfillment, all within the context of we live in this world that uh, is getting more and more diminished because we're urbanizing and we're hitting it very hard. Right. Just thinking out loud here, because, I mean, you have kind of the, the tenets of, of Vancouverism. Did you guys have like was it a was it a manifesto at the time like here's what we're what the objectives are or was it kind of hey we got a lot of bright people with a lot of great ideas we have uh, some space I'm thinking say Yale Town that was previously industrialized and and kind of through a patchwork and uh, a bit of luck and a real bunch of smart people it kind of created what it is and looking back you can kind of put some ideas over top? You know, it's a great question because um, as one of the many people who helped invent Vancouverism, we often don't realize that when you have come later and you look back, you must wonder, was this very deliberate or not? Well, the truth is that there was a widespread consciousness among the people of Vancouver, and I don't just mean at City Hall, I mean the developers and the architects and the active citizens, that a city could be better than the one we had. You know, people travel, people read, people are very intelligent here in the city, in, everywhere, but, you know, they, they are, they're savvy. And, uh, but they looked around and they thought, why don't we have these things that we think are so important? And why aren't we being in the forefront of the environmental movement and things? Those kind of questions. As it happened, many of the people who were in positions of responsibility, and I, first and foremost, I mean elected people, realized that they could tap into a widespread community um, anxiety, you might say, or at least uh, interest in a better way of building cities and building better than we'd done in the past. And uh, and that enabled then what you might call a, an adventure of discovery to happen. Now, I, I say in the book and uh, that um, there were mindsets. We never talked about these mindsets, you know. We just, um, they were just there for us. Like, uh, the density's okay if we could do it right. That uh, congestion was actually our friend because it might shift... Uh, people to alternatives, that um, that government regulation is not bad, 
as long as it's leading to good results. And those were more integrated into our thinking. And then we started to experiment. Every single project that came forward, we tried to deal with it in an intelligent way and tried to operationalize. And slowly, it did gel into a coherent proposition. And, and you know, the third project where you were uh, exploring a particular idea, whether it's um, uh, social housing or uh, park space or whatever it might be, the past experiments became the model. Right. And then we just built the model and we built it over, uh, well, uh, this story I tell is from Expo 86 to the Winter Olympic Games. That's a convenient time. But over about 20 years, we built it into something which then did become a very, very articulated model where people could, knowing it, could judge what they were seeing and was this helping or was this not helping. Wow. So, so Larry, just thinking about Vancouver as a city compared to a lot of you know major metropolitan metropolitan cities in North America, how contingent was Vancouverism on how young we were as a city? It was very important, and and in the book, I acknowledge that that one of the things unique about Vancouver is compared to say most large cities in Canada is that it's a newer city, only from you know uh, eighteen eighty six um, it really didn't come into its own until really uh, before and after the second world war um, it's a new city and a new kind of economy and part of that was that there was no vested power structure. you know this is a city that I enjoyed as a young person coming I was an immigrant from the United States, and I enjoyed coming here because it seemed to be more of a city where uh, you made progress based on your merits and what your contribution actually w- would be rather than, you know, I came from an old family or I bring a lot of money to the table or whatever that might be. That's, a, what, that's a strange thing to hear from a guy from the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, yeah, that's right. But for me, it was an incredibly fresh thing. Right. It was incredibly fresh to know that if you made a contribution, your community would embrace that contribution and it would become a part of a story that ultimately I could write a book about, right? And uh, I just, uh, I, I think that this being a new city, being a new community, being a new society in a way, uh, really empowered people to try stuff. There wasn't a highly fixed model. Yeah, we had imported stuff from around the world, but it was from around the world. But there was nothing that was so vested here that you just couldn't fight against it. And when I work in older, more, what you might call more established cities, I often do find that, you know, the rules are kind of set, the concept's kind of set, and everyone's very skeptical if you're moving into something different. So I think that newness from that point of view made sense, was important. Um, But also, with that liberation available, you then had a lot of people that just dove into it. They just said, we don't want that old city. And, you know, we had, again, before your time, but we had this amazing political transformation that happened in the mid-'70s with the team council coming in. And they basically said, we're not doing it the way we used to do it. We're not going to build the city the way we used to build the city. And we're going to come forward. We're going to really grab alternatives. And the first thing they did was kill the freeway culture, which was 
unbelievably counterintuitive to the day. It's hard for you to understand just how powerful the freeway concept was throughout North America then. Um, and that's where they started. And then I came out of grad school. Hundreds of other people like me came out. We joined an organization. that I remember this vividly. Every day it kind of challenged me to be smarter, to be more creative, you know, to come up with something that you'd heard and everyone said, we all know about that and we also know the problems. We've got something else we have to do. And uh, that empowerment that comes from being a new city, being an open city, um, really allowed experimentation to happen. The other thing was when we made mistakes, you know, we weren't put on the cross. We said, oh, we made some mistakes. Let's try something else. And I tell in the book about how we came up with the um, courtyard concept and how in the earlier versions, the courtyards were too, almost too open. And so actually, uh, people who lived in a building didn't want to use them because they felt they weren't private enough. And people, visitors didn't want to use them because they felt they weren't public enough. Right. And so the next round, we, we tried to, you know, make them more private or at least private to the 100 or so or 200 people that might live in a particular building. That kind of evolution of ideas, which I plot in about six or ten cases in the book uh, on purpose, really shows how we were experimenting, we were trying some things we've, we left behind, uh, some things we added. Can, can you talk a little bit, before we went live here, you you brought up the idea of the the tower and the podium and the townhome downtown and how that was a very tough sell, uh, at least to developers at that time. Uh, can you talk about where that idea for the townhomes downtown came for, why it was important, and and kind of flesh that story out a bit? Well, there's there's um, there's two vectors to the story. Uh, one vector is kind of practical, and the other vector is is um, almost spiritual. Um, many of us, I'll I'll take the the more conceptual first, the spiritual first. Many of us had been around the world and we had seen cities where you might say the house was still an important part, but they had just pushed them together. And the famous ones are in, are in Europe, of course. Well, it turns out we, we now know they're all over the world, but Europe, European examples in England, France, Germany were very good examples. And we noticed that what it did was, was once you push that together you started getting all kinds of activities happening, people, it was safer, uh, and, and all of that. That's on the one side. The more practical side was that early on in the West End, we were building towers, but we were not building anything at the base. And a lot of people in the West End said, you know, it feels kind of scary down here. Uh, it's, it's, it's no, everyone's up in the tower, but nothing's happening down here. And that was also um, reflected in Europe, where they had also built, uh, famous architects had built towers and parks. And contrary to what their, th- their theory was, instead of just creating, you know, greenness and wonder, they were creating unsafe situations and, and, and uh, bore- kind of boring situations. And so with, we, we really got the very thin tower from our own DNA of the West End, where, where because of a unique um, building code thing about how exit stairs could be done. And because we had these great views and people wanted to get up to see the views, and because towers 
couldn't really sprawl all over and one tower take all the view, we started seeing in the West End these very tall, thin, quite elegant towers. But the base was tricky. And so uh, slowly we started adding the base. We also downtown in the first generation before housing became so popular um, downtown, we had office towers in plazas. And those plazas were windswept. They weren't really all that uh, uh, successful. And so the first thing happened with my predecessor, Ray Spaxman, who's I call the father of Vancouverism, um, started asking architects to just put base buildings uh, that would front on the street and provide retail and other interesting things on the street. And that started to happen. But then when we started doing more residential, we did those bases, but there was nothing in them. Or there might just be, you know, the pool and the spa in them or something right. like that. And developers were saying, that's pretty expensive for housing. You might be able to afford that in a AAA office building, but for housing, that's kind of hard. And so um, we married that spiritual idea along with that very practical need. And a number of us, um, and I was one of the people that really led this idea, said, well, why don't we just put townhouses there? Well, a lot of the development community just said, no one wants to buy that. I mean, on the one hand, if you're coming downtown to live, you want to get up to see those spectacular views. And on the other hand, if you're coming downtown, you're probably not a family with children, you're probably a single, and you don't want to live in what probably is a less safe situation, right? Because it's close to the ground and all that. I didn't believe that. And many of us didn't believe that. And so honestly, through a bit of urging and sometimes using our regulatory powers, but mostly urging, we got a few of these things built. And we all made a discovery. And I, 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 a few years later, one of the major architects uh, um, came back to me, to me and said, you know, I was wrong on this. The discovery was there were a lot of people that did not want to live at high, in high-rises and up high. They are afraid of heights, or they had a dog, or they had kids, and they wanted the kids to, you know, they wanted to be able to supervise their kids. Or, frankly, a lot of people just say, I'm coming out of a home, and I'd love to have my own front door. I'd like right. to have my own identity. Right. Um, uh, I always tell the story of myself. I, I, um, I really pushed a developer um, in um, the neighborhood we had recently designed and they were the first big developer at 888 beach i really pushed them hard along with my team to develop townhouses and and they were cooperative and they did and so i bought one of those townhouses myself i thought i should live my principles right my partner and i and so um i started bringing developers in and developers said, oh oh yeah i can see how this works and of course that just helped them a lot to figure out there might be um a market and it might be a good way to do it and then the interesting thing the developer of the day who had done my townhouse didn't believe that they were going to be successful so they they lowered the value in the initial sale just about at the cost of construction i bought my unit as did all the people in the building and we noticed in about a year it almost doubled in value because there were lots of people interested in that kind of living and that started showing skeptical developers and i i understood their skepticism because being a developer is a very risky business but it showed that there was a market there and then it set off and that architect i was telling you about you know did come back later and say you know we were wrong now we put townhouses in the base of all of our buildings because the other piece was that they were being required to build a lot of architecture but none of it was really saleable 
right? It was all back back of house amenities, and um, well, it allowed them to convert what they were building into sellable square footage, right. right? And now, if you go now, we go forward fifteen twenty years, townhouses are very are, are premium right. in the core city. We have several thousand of them. And then from a planning point of view, what I really love about them is they're one of the most fundamental reasons that our streetscapes in the downtown are very hospitable, very domestic, very safe, um, and, uh, and, and frankly, visually just a lot more interesting. Right, right. right. It is kind of a case of if you build it, they will come, right? Because at early days... Yeah, it, it's a case of if you build it, they will come provided you build something someone really wants to come to, right? right. And, and we just believed, we believed in that concept and the way that people would like to live. And by the way, we were talking to tens of thousands of people, many of whom live in, live in single-family homes who were just saying, you know, I just couldn't live downtown because I can't live in a tower. And so, well, this was, you know, this was a good, good alternative. Mm-hmm. By the way, I should also say something, though, that's very important. We're now 25 years later. And this, um, just a few days ago, I had the uh, uh, experience of walking through the West End. Well, 25 years later, and the amazing landscape that's happened in the West End, it's a pretty livable place. (laughs) It turns out that, yeah, there is some merit to that that incredibly dense green of the West End that I know a lot of people appreciate. And what is really all about all of this? It's about diversifying what we offer in terms of what people live in, how they wish to live, where they wish to live. So if you, uh, if you want a very domestic feel, the townhouses are for you. If you want landscape, the West End's for you. If you don't want a tower, then Olympic Village is for you. Uh, we, have all, we have more and more different options. And that was one of the principles of Vancouverism, too, which was no one wanted to come and live downtown because only a few people's needs were were served by the downtown housing offering. Either you were very wealthy up in a penthouse or you had no other options whatsoever and you were just in what was left, right? right? And what we've done is that we just diversified the housing options tremendously, even to the point, I always like to use this just to emphasize this point, even to the point of being big supporters of floating homes. Some people, we found there was a little floating home barrio in Cole Harbor, and I use the word barrio because it was completely illegal, basically, um, of people that were very modest income, mm-hmm. and they wanted to. But what was happening was because they were there, safest possible place you could be in the evening, late at night, early in the morning, because they were always, you know, they were always observing. So our idea was this basic principle: any way that uh, anyone could propose to live, we'd try to find a way to support that. Is that because? You mentioned inclusive design before. Is that like, can you speak a little bit more about inclusive design? Is that what you're referring to there? I am. If you look at the consumer population anywhere, you find not just one kind of consumer, you find many kinds of consumers. And in fact, no matter what you make your definitions, the consumer inclination is richer and more complicated than that. There's always someone else with some other need you hadn't thought about. What we did in the early years uh, of, well, in the late years of the 20th, 20th century, second half, increasingly we were building three or four times kinds of housing. And, and we weren't building that even very well. 
And a lot of people were living in housing that really wasn't optimal for them, but it was the best they could come up with. Well, once we started talking with people by the tens of thousands, and these new ideas, different ideas for living started to pop up, our attitude was the only way we could widen out the market, the consumer market, for housing in the core city was to make an incredibly rich offering of different kinds of housing units. You see, we had a problem. Everyone was disappearing to the suburbs. There were, there were very few people living in the inner city. Uh, there was not much demand. You'd propose something, and most consumers would think, oh, it's too dangerous, it's too dense, it's too awful. But we knew that we needed tens of thousands, if not over 100,000 people to move back in the core city in order to revitalize it. Mm-hmm. And so we couldn't just depend on the young single and the empty nester. We had to build out for all kinds of people, uh, rich and poor and families and non-families and immigrants and, you know, and fourth generation and whatever people could tell us about, we had to find a way to do it. And now, if I was still at City Hall, and I'm not, I would be talking about share housing. Because all over the world, we're starting to see share housing as a major new way of living, not only multi-generational, but mingle, what we call mingles housing. And families, if you go to the Nordic countries, you'll see whole families, three or four families living in basically one house, sharing some facilities, having private facilities, cutting their living costs by probably a third to a half. And I would be sponsoring that if I was here now. Um, because the idea, the principle is, Diversify, 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 diversify because consumers have almost endless ideas. And once you get a lot of offerings out there, the market comes together. It's big. It's, it's aggressive. It's strong. It's, and in fact, it's become so strong, we have an affordability problem. Right. right. And, and it's, it's constantly a moving target, right, of what people want. So how do, you, how do you stay on top of that? And where do you look to for ideas about about where how the direction that housing is going well first thing is what you said is so true there is no state of grace of cities there is no model that once you get there you're done cities are so complex and rich that they are constantly evolving Uh, many people criticize me and my generation for being insensitive to middle-income affordability for example Well, I can tell you, back in the 80s and 90s, turn of the century, middle-income affordability was not an issue. Any first startup family, one way or another, could find a way into the market, and they could build equity, and of course then housing prices were going up, and uh, Francis Buell always reminds me that, you know, if we were 15 years ago, we would be sitting having coffee and being so happy that our, the price of our house had gone up 15% because we got more equity, more equity, more equity, to the point that's, that families now build their entire uh, financial strategy for retirement and for their children around that equity, right? Mm-hmm. So that's just an example. Uh, one point, we had a, a sense of what represented a great city, which was we had to accommodate low-income people. That evolved even while I was still at City Hall to saying in low-income housing, there had to be some low-end of market middle-income housing because we just couldn't have everyone of one income all in one building. That was not a good social thing to do. To the point now, you know, we're 15 years later, that we realize we now need a sector of secure middle-income housing. 
right? That's how cities are just constantly evolving. Interestingly enough, if you don't travel very much, you think that's a unique Vancouver situation. If you do travel, you'll find that every successful city in the world is having the same problem. And every successful city in the world is trying to innovate of how to cope with that. Whether you talk about the nonprofit home ownership that's in Madrid, or you talk about the co or shared housing that's in Helsinki, uh, or you talk about the uh, worker housing that's in Melbourne, cities are trying to invent a new uh, 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 response to what is a current urban issue around the world, which is middle-income affordability. And the challenge for the current generation of Vancouverism is to take our model, which didn't accommodate that very well, and evolve it to accommodate, not lose what we, what we were able to put in place, but add to it. You know, this is always an additive concept. And if Vancouver's intelligentsia, the planners, the architects, the developers, the active citizens, can constantly be critical, but also constantly be activist, to add new solutions, then Vancouverism will remain relevant and it will remain an aspiration elsewhere in the world. If we get complacent, these issues will overwhelm us because there is no state of grace of cities. You know, just thinking about that and uh, this idea of the the intelligentsia and, and adding solutions and and these all these new types of living arrangements that you're seeing around the world. I'm interested in Vancouver because when there's a development application, there's public consultation and often things get derailed um, it, during that public consultation. And there's the not in my backyard folks and you know all all the things that everyone talks about right now like is this moment different from from when you were at city hall but also how do you marry the kind of top down we have some ideas we're seeing how how consumers want to live although it's not clear to everyone with conservatism or pushback uh, of of just the way people are currently living yeah or or you could put it another way a new generation who can't easily get into the old traditional market are wanting different ways to also join the community. And some people are just pushing back and saying, no, you know, do it my way, find your way in. And if you're lucky, you're lucky. And if you're not, you're not. That's how I see it. Um, One thing I've learned around the world and in all of my practice is that if you try to solve these kind of issues at the moment at which you have an application for development and you have a sitting situation, and you have really no learning and no sharing of ideas and that that really happens in a meaningful way, you have a low probability of success. And I see cities which every single development is a fight, a fight, a fight, a fight. They make some progress and they don't make other progress. And this is true particularly in North American cities. Because in North America, the one thing we do have is that we don't want a senior authority just swooping down and, you know, deciding what's good for us all. But I learned something else from the experience of Vancouverism, which was very different in the way that we engage the public than you see today. And that is that we were constantly talking to our citizens about the nature of the city they wanted and we needed, not when there was an application in front of us, but when there wasn't when we could dream together about a great city and where, and where what really could happen was an incredible amount of learning. And once people were learning, they were coming to some new ideas of cities. And once we were learning, 
we were getting rid of some of our terrible insensitivities to what would happen to people with just, you know, unthoughtful development. And so what we were building was a what I call, it's kind of, uh, it's an academic word, but it's kind of a connoisseurship of great cities. So that later on in the history of the first round of Vancouverism, you would often see very amazing propositions, and they had actually a pretty good community support. But by the same token, those propositions had had been negotiated through to um, to kind of polish off the rough edges, you might say, uh, for people. That's number one. Number two, and critics will say this very quickly, I was very lucky because in my generation, we could leave the single-family communities alone, and we had huge areas in which most new development could happen. Right. I believed in that because I looked around Vancouver. I started my life as a neighborhood planner revitalizing those communities. And I love those communities. I believed in those communities. I still believe in those communities. And so I didn't want to be the agent to go in and destabilize those communities. And we did have big swaths of land that were available that were obsolete to industrial needs and obsolete to, you know, warehousing needs and those old rail yards and thousands of acres. And so we were lucky to be able to exploit those. And by the way, there are still nearly a thousand acres that could be exploited the same way. What did happen, starting at the end of my uh, tenure, but certainly going into the next uh, generation with uh, uh, people like Brent Totteran, who became the chief planner after uh, Ann McAfee and I, was that he started doing another very, very smart initiative. He started working in with people in communities and saying, how might we add just a few more units here? And so that led into the rear lane housing. That led into the legalization of secondary suites. That led into uh, infill, little infill developments. Nothing really huge, but thousands of units. Right. Right. And so he took the density of those communities, which had been sometimes quite low, and he intensified, but in a way that was very what, what we call now very gentle. Um, and he did it with people. And he did it with a, in a scenario that's very interesting. The profits almost always went to those individual community people, those landowners, rather than going to a developer with the landowner, the existing sitting population being mostly having to cope with the impacts. So that was also a very good move. But what, the, re, the way he did it and the way that we've had most success is when we go out and we talk to people about the principles. Like we ask a simple question. In this neighborhood here, where, where are you going to live when you're older and you want to be out of this big house and you would like to be, you know, uh, have an apartment, but you'd like to stay in the same neighborhood, but where's that going to happen? And you find out many neighborhoods you can't do it. Or where are your kids going to live in their first home? And right. they know they don't want to live out, you know, f- an hour and a half away. They like to live in this neighborhood. And all of a sudden people start thinking, well, I think there are ways to insinuate what we need into our community. But you know what? Be careful. Don't just wipe out, you know, block after block and build something that's completely anonymous to us. Do it in a way that's suitable to us. That kind of mutual learning was incredibly um, productive in Vancouverism. It was fundamental. And in my book, I say there needs to be a new, uh, what I would call a reset in the way that government is engaging people and even the development community is engaging people to pull away from that moment 
of, you know, an application and a decision when no one's going to learn anything. So everyone's going to position and I'm going to take the most conservative position if I'm on either side. Move away from that and start having a big discussion about the nature of cities and the nature of what we want our city to be. When was the last time that happened that you know about here in Vancouver? Can we talk a little bit about the thousand, the 1,000 acres? <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> Asking for a friend. But the... Uh, the, the it, Clearly, you think there's still pockets of that 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 are ripe for development in in the Vancouver with, area with little with little community backlash by the sounds of things. Well, what I'm going to tell you next is contrary to public policy. It's contrary to city policy. It's contrary to regional policy. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Great, <laughs> because I believe it is very important for us to think very creatively about our city because we have a crisis of affordability. And that has to do with the False Creek Flats. False Creek Flats is not 1,000 acres, but it's probably, I've, I've never done the acreage, it's probably 500 acres. Recently, we put a zoning in place that allows basically some industry and some high tech and a few housing units, uh, but not very much. By transit, it's four minutes from downtown. Uh, I'm on the transit board, and we've are now building a new transit alignment with two stations in that location and a potential for a third station. It's right at the center of our core city. Our core city is not big enough for the region if you compare it to other cities around the world. And there it sits. And because it is such a contradiction between this current allowance and what everyone in the world can see as possible, Land is not even trading according to that current allowance, which usually happens in zoning, right? Usually you say, okay, what can you do? And that's how much your land's value. No, it's trading in terms of what might be possible. So I believe that a huge breakthrough could happen in both the quality and livability of our city, but also the affordability of our city. If City Hall took the bull by the horns and said, we're going to do a new plan for this area. And by the way, it's going to have all the office space we have in the current plan. It's going to have all the industrial space we have in the current plan. It's going to have all the uh, rental housing, maybe a lot more than we have in the current plan. And then there's a second factor. We, we um, invented something here, which is now all over the world, which is leveraging uh, what is needed by the community through the private development process because we understood there was great wealth in the development process. And if, if uh, a developer buys a piece of land and then we in the city allow them to do more than they thought, there's wealth there that they weren't including when they bought that piece of land. Right. And any developer will tell you that's the truth. And so we could actually leverage the things we want, like the workplaces, the high tech and the industry, uh, by allowing the market to enjoy the things the market wants like housing and, uh, and uh, you know, high-order offices and other things like that. And you can build a zoning where you get both together. And the developability is still very, very profitable. I, you need to know that in our generation, we did not demonize development or developers. We know that they're the only people that actually make change. And we know it's incredibly risky business. So we had to understand urban land economics to understand what worked for them and what didn't work for them. But also to understand where there is incredible extra wealth in that equation, which could then go to help 
serve public uh, objectives. And that could happen in the flats. And what we'd also discovered from reaction from developers was often the things we were going to do enhance the value of their product. You know, if we added a park and childcare and all that, all of a sudden a lot more people wanted to buy their units, right? So it was a virtuous circle. I have been very public in urging that we rethink those, that area. And let's notice that the industrial functionality, in a, as the city gets larger, maybe it moves out just one ring, not out to the suburbs, but just one ring out where there is more industrial, on designated industrial land, there is more potential. Um, and I believe we just need to recalibrate that. When downtown housing is starting to sell at over $2,000 a square foot, when we have the success of this inner city living model, which we know is environmentally responsible, we really need to just go the old-fashioned idea of supply and demand. We have to open up the market to a little bit more of that. And then we have to do it in an intelligent way. We have to do it by integrating that secure middle-income sector through, through nonprofit home ownership and rental housing and other things, but also allowing some condos and, and allowing some office buildings and leveraging then some of the live workspaces and the artist workspaces, et cetera. So that's, that's really what I talk about. And if you go throughout the region then, because we have this amazing regional plan of regional town centers connected by transit, you will find other locations close to transit, close to other development, which also offer opportunities. That's what we have to do as a whole city because we are a destination city. 50,000 or so people want to come and join us every year. That's not going to change. No one sees it changing. We have the, one of the lowest unemployment rates in history, which means that people are going to be drawn from high unemployment locations around the world to this location. We have an, a burgeoning high-tech industry, which means high-tech intelligence is coming from around the world to us. You know, I don't know if you know, but we didn't even really compete for the Amazon office. Why? We didn't have to. Amazon is already putting thousands of employees here, right? And in that kind of concept, we really need to think about our city's ability to accommodate and then do it in a, in a secure way for the destiny of our long-sitting local people. Just as, an, as, a, as a final thought there, because the, the, so, the flats, what do you think the probability of that kind of transformation that you're talking about? Because that would be unbelievable well and and i should say is it is it the gro- grocer's row there the, uh, the grocer's row is not the big issue that's not the big no issue. in fact you could accommodate that quite easily i think in the in the future scenario you've got just hundreds of acres to deal with um i believe it's inevitable in my book i say that unfortunately the existing zoning which had good intentions is turning out to be a holding zone mm-hmm. but what I want to see is the city taking a strong leadership role, not letting it happen by accident, not letting it happen with a lot of victims and a lot of negative impacts. Take a leadership role, work with the development community, the landowner community, the business, the business community, the nonprofit community, and the average citizens in that, those surrounding communities. Get everyone together and let's dream. Let's not try to do an application, but let's dream about what this place could be to be the expansion of downtown Vancouver um, and yet still accommodate all those things that they were searching for. Well, maybe we'll leave it there, but yeah. Larry, do you, have, uh, do you have time to stick around for the five wire, five quick questions about Vancouver? Sure. So Larry, question number one, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? 
My favorite neighborhood in Vancouver uh, is really Falls Creek North or Yaletown. What I love about it is part of it we designed, as you know, through the new development. We include every possible thing. It's one of the highest density communities in Canada, but it's still also one of the most livable. I did a review. 91% of people love living in that community, but it also has the heritage of historic Yale towns. That together is a very delicate and beautiful community. Favorite bar or restaurant? Uh, it's uh, Umberto's Il Giardino. Nice. It's up the street from me. It's my neighborhood cafe. I uh, go constantly. The food's delicious. The people are wonderful. And it's just, it's just what you want urban living to be. I don't have to drive. I can drink all I want. I walk home. <laughs> <laughs> Where is the first place that you bring someone from out of town? Um, I usually try to go to the Roundhouse Plaza. Uh, just at uh, at um, uh, Pacific Boulevard and Davy Street, mostly because it's really indicative of everything we were trying to do. Now, if I just bring people who have no interest in urbanism, I probably go to Granville Island uh, or someplace like that. But if I want to talk about cities and what our city is about, that's where I go. If you could give your eighteen-year-old self one piece of advice based on your storied career, what would it be? Uh, buy a house now and buy as soon as possible. Don't, doesn't matter what it's like, doesn't matter where it is, just get into the market. That's, that's a, a market answer. What I would really tell an 18-year-old person to be, find love, find the partner of your life. Very good answer. First time we've had that answer, too. <laughs> yeah, both those answers are very good, actually. Uh, and the last question, what is something you've purchased for under $500 uh, recently? Uh, that has had a major positive impact on your life? Um, I recently bought a 17th century drawing by a well-known French artist that just was so beautifully rendered that it kind of inspired me to uh, be more careful in what I do and to be more creative in what I do. Wow, there may be some of the best answers we've had on the five wire. That, this is uh, yeah, that that uh, I feel like that's a metaphor. That last answer for, for, <laughs> for the whole conversation, it sort of is. Yeah, so, so <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> so, Larry, how can people find out more about your book, and how can they actually get a copy of your book, and then also um, find out more about what you're doing? Well, the book is uh, available through UBC Press. It's available on Amazon, both in the uh, digital and hard copy. Um, and it, you can get it literally delivered to you in a day or two. Uh, it's also at UBC Bookstore. It's SFU Bookstore. It's at, um, at, at popular bookstores downtown. So it's generally available. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much again uh, for coming back the second time. And uh, that was a phenomenal conversation. So I enjoyed you. it too. It was very interesting. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with the member of the Order of Canada. And that's just one of the many claims to fame Larry Beasley has. Right, Very and, and uh, another hat he wears is humbleness, Matt. He is a humble man. He he is a very humble guy and inspirational. And that was a, that was a that conversation didn't disappoint. I knew it wasn't going to disappoint, and neither does this book. And what we should say about this book is, if you listen to that and you want a copy of this book, and you should because the book is amazing, head over on Google Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on the right hand side. There's a bar with reviews. 
You're going to want to do a review of the podcast there. The next five, one of these lucky reviewers is getting a book, a signed copy of Vancouverism. And if you don't know how to review it on Google, you can always give Matt a call. He can walk you through it. <laughs> I will walk you. Th- this is specifically years of years Shout of out to my grandma here. <laughs> years of training walking people through Google. Uh, <laughs> Matt Scalina. Uh, on a side note, though, Matt, we should just, I, I just want to reiterate, this book honestly is, if you're, if you're interested in Vancouver, just, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but basically pre-expo till now, yeah. Is, is in this book and the insider and, account and talking about the areas that you probably live in and how they developed. And you're going to, I mean, it's just what's so awesome about reading this book is you just, you're like, oh yeah, perfect. I, that's, that's so interesting why they chose to do that or why it just kind of, it solidifies a lot of things that you've probably already thought about in this city. Well, what we said to Larry when he showed up in, and I think it holds true after you see this book, you're like, I can't believe this book didn't exist. Right. Right. Before now, it seems so Well, necessary. he said it took him 18, 18 months to, to, to write the book, but you know, it probably took him his whole career to really write the book. See, nice, what, I, see what I did there? Nicely done. <laughs> All <laughs> right, what done. else do we got for the day? What else do we got? We got Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. That's .com. That's our website where you're going to go to sign up to things like the Live Wire. That's our weekly newsletter with the latest episodes, tips and tricks, deal of the month stats when they come out we have our own specific stats we're sending out there's no reason why you don't want to be on this list we also have private client services matt if you are not using pcs you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by you get sold prices days on market it's basically realtor level information it's at your fingertips it's free it's available at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com Sign up for your free account. Really, there's no reason you shouldn't be using PCS. That's right. If you're looking at Vancouver Real Estate without PCS, you're doing it wrong. And if you want to talk about that or anything else, give me a call, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret Scalina line. Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And I'm just thinking out loud here, actually, if you're having trouble figuring out how to give a review, contact info. Uh, yeah. At, at, yeah. Yeah. Contact info. Contact secret. I'll send you a link. All right, guys. Have a great week. Take care. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? 
playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 